that. We will be in John chapter 10, verses 31 through 42. This is a sermon that is built out of the understanding that Jesus' works, although not as high as his words as far as witness, his works should at least be believed even if his words aren't. It is a sermon entitled, Believe the Works. Jesus is, as we discussed last time, back in Jerusalem in the middle of the wintertime during the Feast of Dedication, which you and I probably know of as Hanukkah. By, uh, by the way, just as a word of thing, uh, Ralph, do you mind turning on the air conditioners in here? For some reason, they're all turned off. Um, and it's heating up up here pretty quick. Just stick them to 70. It's good because you're up <laughs> Sounds good. There's air coming out? Yeah. A lot of hot air up here. Can you turn the air conditioners on? <laughs> you think that's hot? Just wait for a minute. Thank you. I'm not sure how those got turned off. Um, is okay? Pat, it is not okay. It is not okay to be warm. <laughs> I can't take a jacket off. I'm preaching. So <laughs> All right, let's try to start this sermon again. <laughs> I'm wearing closed-toed shoes with a broken toe, so that should tell you how much I respect what I'm wearing right now. All right, John chapter 10. Where were we again? Verses 31 through 42. Jesus has been referencing the reality of who he is. People can continually come up to him and say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And yet, up to this point in the Gospel of John, there's only a single person that he said that to, and she wasn't even Jewish. It was the woman at the well, John chapter 4 where he expresses to her, and she's just like, I know when the Messiah comes, he's going to teach us all these things. And he just comes out and he says, woman, the person who's speaking to you is him. I am the Messiah. And she was like, I got some questions for you. But the reality is, none of the people in Jerusalem, all of the leaders of the people, did not have any intention of listening to his words, and didn't have any intention of even giving him the credit for his works. And this is where Jesus comes down on them pretty harshly and expresses to them, look, if you can't even find yourself to believe the words, at least believe the works. I mean, there's a guy who was born blind right here four months ago that can now see. You interviewed his family. You interviewed him. You interviewed me. You interviewed all the witnesses, and still it's not enough. Even though you know the scriptures say that nobody can open the eyes of the blind except God alone. You say, well, what about all of these other miracles that Jesus did? The changing of the water to wine in Cana of Galilee. Why, why do such a thing? Why do such a thing to the express of the reality that God in his works blesses his people? Wine is a decision that shows us the blessing of God to do something that time could not afford. You can't make wine instantly. It doesn't work like that. Wine takes time. You have to crush the grapes. It has to ferment. It has to take time to build up all of its acids, all of its alcohols. But Jesus makes it instantly, showing a handiwork that is akin to creation. But he does the same thing with the healing of the royal official's son. Remember this back in John chapter 4 towards the end where someone comes to him 
and expresses, my son is very sick, nigh unto death. And Jesus heals him from afar, doesn't even go to his house. Just says that the man believed the Lord, the man believed Christ, and his son was healed. Jesus just says, your son will live. And he heals him, not even being in his own presence. He heals the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. A man who had for 38 years attempted to crawl into the pool to be healed because there was something that was going on with the waters there. We're not entirely sure what that was. All we know is that other people were healed by the intention of God there at that pool, but this man for 38 years could not figure out how to do it. He couldn't get there in time. Being paralyzed slowed him down enough so that somebody else would rush in. Jesus just doesn't heal his spine and say, now it's time for physical therapy. Good luck with rehab and see if you can walk in you know, a couple of years. No, he heals him, tells him to pick up his mat and go home. Atrophied muscles are now fully grown. Bones that are not strong enough to support his weight because they never have are instantly stronger. Balance, these things that we don't even think about when we walk. Balance restored, neurological wires rewired, muscles created, bones created, balance created. Everything about this man was new. Even in medical science, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface on something like that. And here, Jesus does it with a word. This is creation-level stuff. As for the out-and-out creation-level stuff, for the feeding of the 5,000. Now, for those of you who usually plan for big groups coming to your home, and you have just five loaves and two fishes, you'll know it's going to run out. It's not going to be enough. 5,000 people, just 5,000 heads of household, by the way, which is why most people imagine that that group was nearing twenty to 25,000 people fed by a couple of loaves of bread. And when I say loaves, I don't even mean this. Not like it would be less of a miracle. I mean like dinner rolls. This was one kid's lunch. Five dinner rolls and two little herring-like fish. And from this, he fed everyone. That is not just semi-creation level stuff. That is full-on creation level stuff. That is, it keeps on multiplying no matter how much you break it, no matter how much you take from it. Twelve basketfuls left over. How about the showing of himself to all of the people that were witness to this, even to this entire group of 5,000 who said there was no ship that left, and yet he left from this side of the sea all the way to the others, and his disciples saw him walking on water. What is that showing? Not just who he is, not just the power that he has, but he is speaking of divine language itself at the creation of the world. Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the, world, uh, of the deep. The same thing here. In the previous chapter, we're here in John 10, back in John chapter 9, I already mentioned the man blind from birth. His parents knew him. The Pharisees knew him. Everyone knew him. Which is why it became such a huge issue. Because we know that nobody can do this unless he's sent from God. And if he's sent from God, what he's claiming doesn't line up with the other prophets because he's not claiming to just be another prophet. He is claiming out and out to be God. We finished our last passage off at that exact statement. 
In verse 30, I and the Father are one. It does not mean that the Son, the Lord Christ, and the Father are the same person. It means they are the same God. And the structure inside the Greek there, as we mentioned last time we were here, bears that out. The individual persons of the Son and the Father are individual persons. They are of the same God. One God. And what was their response? That's where we pick up this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God and his word. John 10, 31 through 42. Here's the response. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, said, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them and says, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even if you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray, first with thanksgiving, as you have preserved this text throughout the history of fallible people to be able to speak to us even this morning. We thank you that your word, ever present in the lives of your people, does its work as they gather together to learn from you. We pray that we come with that purpose. We thank you, Father, for the privilege and the right to belong to your family that you work on our hearts from the very insides of who we are, utilizing your word and your promises. Father, we pray that we do not be content with anybody else's words and promises, for they will eventually let us down. But the person who trusts in you will never be put to shame. We thank you for that this morning. We pray, Father, just as you inspired these words through your spirit so many years ago and preserved them through that same spirit's power, would your spirit give our hearts illumination this morning? That we may understand and love your word and seek it for one another. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. John 10 is kind of a beast of a passage because it assumes familiarity with a lot of things that we just aren't familiar with. It assumes familiarity with Psalm 82. It assumes familiarity with the, um, with the expressions of how the rabbinic literature argued for this and what positions they held on it. It assumes even familiarity with the Feast of Dedication, something that I'm relatively certain none of you have ever attended. But John also helps us along. 
He helps us along with realizing, yes, this is the Feast of Dedication. It took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. He gives us the whole setting here because, again, John is not primarily writing to Jewish people. He's writing to Greek people who are trying to figure out who Jesus is. And once you know it, this is one of the things I absolutely love about the gospel writers. They never fully come out and say exactly who Jesus is. They just give their readers his words and his works. And they leave it in the reader's lap and say, now what will you do with that? Because what you do with that reveals your heart. Is Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God? Or is he something to apologize for or something to avoid or reinterpret or change over again to make after your own preferences? John will lay out Christ's teaching here and it is brutal if you do not believe in Christ. Because what he actually says to them is the reality that if they are not capable of believing his words, at least do the smallest thing and believe the works. He says to these people who about four or five months beforehand were able to see that he had healed a man born blind. And through the testimony of others, including John the Baptist and all of his disciples and all the thousands of people that saw him multiply breads and fishes, there is no way to deny the works if you are actually open to being wrong. And that's where Jesus focuses on. Sometimes it is easy to miss the words, but you cannot argue to miss the works. By any standard, of witness, by any legal standard at the time, even by any spiritual standard at the time, let all of these things be determined by two or three witnesses. And what does he continually say? The Father has borne witness about me. He has called out from heaven audibly, verbally, this is my beloved son. The Pharisees were there at his baptism to hear that. The Spirit has borne witness. The Scriptures have borne witness. His works have borne witness about him. And he says, look, if these witnesses prove to be wrong, then you're right to doubt me. But none of them have proven to be wrong. Even your own eyes, he is expressing to them. This goes to the eternal issue of unbelief is not a lack of knowledge or lack of exposure to the facts. Unbelief is a matter of an unbelieving heart. No amount of evidence will ever be enough. And so Jesus shows them the basic problem that's sitting inside their heart. He says, okay, I and the Father are one. They pick up stones to stone him. In verse 32, Jesus answers and says, wait a second, before you kill me, just a question. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of those good things that I have done are you stoning me? Similar reasoning, by the way, when he was challenged for doing something on the Sabbath. He says, is it wrong to do something good on the Sabbath? They say, no. It's not for good works that we're stoning you. It's because of bad words. You as a man are claiming to be God. That's blasphemy. Which, in their defense for anyone else is. But what he's saying is, I understand you're having a hard time believing the words, but what are you going to do about the works? They are undeniable, you would think. 
It is undeniable if they've watched him heal a man born blind, something only God can do. It is undeniable if it comes out to the reality of multiplying bread and fishes. It is undeniable somebody walking on water. These things are not possible. Turning water into wine publicly. Multiplying bread and fish publicly. Healing a man born blind publicly. A paralytic man publicly. Everyone knew these people. And he's saying, if you're not going to believe my words, at least believe the works. And that's kind of what John is expressing to his readers. Reader, John is saying, you've been hearing the words of Christ. And if you've gotten to the point where you cannot believe his words and his claims about who he is, at least believe the testimony of all the things that he did. He's not doing this to say that it's a good thing to believe only when you see a miracle. He's saying this to reveal that the person who doesn't believe the words of Christ will not believe the works of Christ. It is not logical, their position. It is not logical to dismiss the words of Christ any more than it is logical to dismiss the works of Christ, for they are one. The words of Christ, the works of Christ, continually bear witness about who he is. He said, why doesn't John just avoid this altogether? And for those of you who are in Sunday school this morning, maybe you'll get a clue as to why this was. We were in 1 Corinthians this morning and talks right about it. Why doesn't John just go, you know what, forget all the words of Christ, for all the works of Christ. I'll just tell them who Christ is, and they should believe in him, and end of story. The question about who he is is not a matter of us giving to the hearer what they want. Jesus wasn't giving people what they wanted. In fact, when he was disbelieved in multiple places, he says, fine, I can't do any more works here. All it would do is have you follow me because of the tricks. This generation, he says, always wants signs and wonders. I'm not going to give you any more. He says, oh, wait, I'll give you one. The sign of Jonah. A man buried in the grave for three days that resurrects and calls people to repentance. Yeah, I'll do that but I'm not going to heal anyone else anymore. I'm not going to do anything else anymore. He says that at a certain point. Why? Because it doesn't matter what they would do. It doesn't, excuse me, it doesn't matter what he would do. It doesn't matter what he would say. They would not believe him. What we should be hearing is that the resistance to God in the hearts of unbelieving people is unassailable and unfixable by those who preach. God must wake them up. God must give them faith. It's humiliating, isn't it? You say, well, what's different about me? I have faith. I remember one day not believing, the next day believing. Yes, upon retroflex, um, who caused that? Whose word and testimony caused that? Whose scripture brought your faith about? What story? What work of Christ? And since then, what has brought you assurance of these things but to watch God continually work in your life in ways that you never would have? Bringing new desires, killing old ones. This is the testimony of God continually working on our lives. We see it in other people's lives. But if your goal is to disbelieve Christ, you'll find what you're looking for. And that's exactly what John leaves his readers to sit. And that's why I say for the person that's not believing this, both John and Jesus are being very brutal here. 
If your goal is to disbelieve Christ and instead to rely on yourself, you'll find exactly what you're looking for in this world. Especially this culture. Go rely on yourself. Absolutely. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Everything will be fine. You can make your own reality. You can make your own luck. You can do all this kind of stuff. And Jesus is here saying, none of that's true. None of that's the way the world works. The world works under the rule of him who made it. And then he speaks to them and their expectation and says, the one who made it and the one through whom it was made are the same God and one of them is standing right in front of you. It is a warning to us who love theology and being certain of things we don't know about to be very, very careful before we make calls. Let me explain what I mean. In their theology, God could not become a man. Were they right? It's only fair to say that God had yet not become a man. But they weren't right because they were making calls on things they did not understand. God is not a man like one of us. It doesn't work like that. But God becoming a man before that, becoming a baby, and growing up, not only in wisdom but in stature somehow, But their expectations were that because it doesn't match what we are looking for, it can't be right. There's a very dangerous path to go down. If God doesn't work the way I want him to work, it's not him. It must be something else. If God is not giving me what I want, then maybe he's not dependable in any way at all. Maybe God's giving you what you need, and you don't even know what it is. Life will take, as a Christian, many, many paths that you would not prefer. One of the great things about following Christ is to be reminded of the fact that in all our ways, acknowledging him teaches us to be grateful no matter the outcome. And sometimes that is deathly hard. We look at our circumstances and wish it was something else. We look at our setting and we wish it could be something else. These people were looking at Christ and wishing for the Messiah to be someone else. Wishing for God to be someone else that they had made up. And Jesus says, you realize that that's not, that that's not conducive to any reality you know. He says, if you can't even bring yourself to believe my words, which are consistent with the scriptures through and through. Just to show you how self-deceived, he says, at least try to believe the works. We're not usually used to a more sarcastic response, but that's exactly what it is. Try. Try to believe the works. And you will find that the problem is not a lack of knowledge. The problem is unbelief. At the center of who you are in anything that doesn't remind you of you. Our society and every society since has fallen into that same hole. We cannot abide somebody that doesn't remind us of us. And yet, the problem with that pride is Christ does not remind us of us, He reminds us of God. 
And for the unbelieving heart, it makes us resent him. And John interacts with that directly and says, reader, and he uses the words of Christ to do this, reader, believe his words. And if you can't, try to believe his works. And the answer of everyone who has an unbelieving heart is, not only do I not have ears to hear, I also don't have eyes to see. And John says, I know. Now hear the testimony of the one who will destroy your worldview. There is no accident here why John will follow this up with this story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It it is the death shot to anyone who would be certain of themselves. He comes up and says, try to believe his works. And you go, look, okay, it's, it's one thing to turn water to wine, I suppose. It's another thing. Maybe we can explain away the healing of the royal official's son in John 4 with uh, he just happened to get better. We can try to explain it away any which way. Maybe the healing of the paralytic of Bethesda. Maybe he just had you know, a tumor that was shifted in just the wrong way or something like this. Maybe the feeding of the 5,000, he had a bunch of helpers. The disciples were slipping in bread enough to feed, you know, tens of thousands of people. They were hiding in their pockets or something. We can explain that away. The walking on the water. Maybe the disciples were lying. Maybe he just swam across the sea. It's only five and a half miles during a storm. That made fishermen terrified for their lives. It's pretty easy. The healing of the man blind from birth is a little bit more difficult. So we're going to explain it away. Maybe it's a guy who looks like him. We'll interview his parents. See, they even seem hesitant. You see how everything can be explained away? Maybe they just found a doppelganger. And he's lying. Because one thing I know, I can't be wrong. You see the attitude? And John is having us interact with it all the way down to the very last sentences here about John the Baptist's words about him all having been come true. And we instantly, in chapter 11, turn to the story of Lazarus. Something that was done publicly with both friends and enemies where after four days of him being dead in the tomb, which according to Jewish tradition, the spirit of the person hung around for three days to ensure that that wasn't be a true resurrection. So Jesus waits four days, waits, and we'll talk all about it when we get there, waits until there's no cultural expectation that any reviving could ever take place at all, and simply with a word, not even with works, just with a word, doesn't even tell him to rise from the dead. Who remembers what he says? Come out. What what ability was there in Lazarus to respond to that. None. Where is, it's not a request, thank you. It's not like Lazarus, if you feel like it, and uh, you know, you're able to unbind your feet so you can walk a little bit better and whatnot. Uh, if you don't mind coming out, I got some, something to show off. No. Get out here. And inside the command is the gift to be able to do it. That's where John's bringing us. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You say, how is it that I can believe? Let me help you. You can't work your way up to it. It is a gift that flows along the words. Let me put it in terminology that we'd all recognize. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God.
more specifically, the word of Christ. It only comes that way. It comes along the sound of the command. And if God is to save his people from their sins, which is exactly what he is doing, then the command will bear with it the ability to respond, not in us, but in his promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't dig down in yourself and find strength. Dig into Christ and find it there. Don't don't look at your life and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to pull apart everything that I can define as good and life. And if Jesus matches my definition, I'll add him to that too. And then if this doesn't, I'll put that out. No, no, no. It is Christ or nothing. And Christ, this is the marvelous equation of the gospel. Christ plus nothing actually equals everything. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this other stuff will be added to you. Don't even worry about it. What you will eat, what you will put on, what tomorrow brings. You say, does that mean if I follow Christ, just like the prosperity preachers speak, that all my money will go up and I will be clothed and everything will be fine? No. Faithful Christians starve. It means it will be worth it to you whatever path he brings you. No matter what losses you endure, what pains you suffer, and what things you leave behind, deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow him. It is not the key to successful life in this world. It is a key to eternal life in the world to come. And the focus is not you, it is Christ. Every time. And so as the reader makes his way through this passage, John is showing with Jesus' words the same thing that the Jews who were there for the Feast of Dedication were learning. They had come there to celebrate the rededication of the temple after Antiochus IV, back 200 years before, had offered a pig on the altar and all this kind of stuff. The whole story of Hanukkah is fascinating. This is the celebration that they were all coming to Jerusalem to hear. Only the most devout of Jews would have been in Jerusalem for this. This wasn't like the Feast of Booths where everyone was there. This was kind of like the, the new, uh, if you will, the new holiday on the block. And if you were a super devout person, you would have found yourself in Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication. And Jesus being there is interacting with them. And their first response to them or to him, after saying, I and the Father are one, is to pick up stones to stone him. These are, this is the best that mankind could put forth at this point. They answer back and says uh, that it is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. We're just going to ignore the good works. We're just going to go to the word that we don't like. And Jesus is like, now I've got a lot of works that back up those words. There's a lot of other testimony that backs up my words too. In fact, how many of you have God speaking audibly from heaven in the hearing of your ancestors declaring who I am not but a couple years ago? Goodness. They said it is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. By the way, if you don't think that Jesus ever claimed to be God, you, you got a bunch of confused Jews here that heard him from his own mouth. Jesus answered them and says, and this is, this is 
just remarkable. He takes their own rabbinical teachings and turns them on its head. And he takes them to Psalm 82. He says, now wait a second. Isn't it written in your law, which is a term for all of scripture, quote, I said you are gods, unquote. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and you know that scripture can't be broken, do you say to him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, quote, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God, unquote. Now, if you've ever read through the Gospel of John, you would be forgiven by kind of reading that, glazing over, passing it by, and moving on to the next section because we're coming to Lazarus, which is awesome. But don't move on so quick. We have so many things in here that Jesus is expressing to them that shows them their own lack of belief, not only in him, but also in the scriptures and the fact that this is just continuing a pattern of them interacting with God on the basis of selfishness. It's remarkable. I want you to see it. There had been a teaching about Psalm 82 that this was a reference to this reality that, uh, that God was referring to the rulers of the present age as gods in the fact that they rule on behalf of God, right? And so in Psalm 82, God was referring to these rulers about, and he actually calls them gods, not because they were God in some deific term, but that they represented God's rule on this earth. And so Jesus takes that teaching that they were required to hold to, and he puts it back in their face. He's like, now wait a second. He calls all rulers gods, according to your own tradition. And then you're going to come and stone me because I don't even call myself God. I just call myself son of God. And you're going to have a problem with that? That's not consistent with your view of the scriptures. Now, I will point out, this doesn't mean Jesus agrees with their view of scripture. He's taking their words and turning them on themselves to judge their works. They're about to stone him. And so he says, you're welcome to take my words and my works and judge them next to each other, but at least be consistent. Your words aren't matching your works. Isn't that a sign of deception? If you say one thing and do another thing, are you good or right? Or are you a liar? This is exactly what Jesus is saying. What your teachers and what you teach and what you say about this psalm is not matching why you're holding stones in your hands right now. And you think you're on the moral high ground. You teach love of God and love of neighbor, and yet you are here trying to kill both. I love what he says here. It's one of my favorite quotations of Jesus. I really wish it occurred in the Gospel of Matthew so I could put it in my dissertation, but it's not. It's really unfortunate that it's only here in John 10, verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. He bases his entire argument on one word written a thousand years beforehand by Asaph. One word. Just as a side note, because I love that study, if your view of scripture does not match Jesus's, you might want to see to that. And there are many in the church today who take such a low view of scripture as to never even open the Old Testament because it's difficult. Do the hard work. It is worth it. And woe to us if we teach that we should not even open it. As many do. 
Scripture cannot be broken. No matter what you try, no matter how you twist it, the Scripture will work. We are the grass, and it endures forever. Look at verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? Here, he's making reference to the fact that he was consecrated at his own baptism, and the rulers of the people were there to hear it verbally. Don't forget, the baptism was not just a witness of John the Baptist. The baptism of Jesus, all three members of the Trinity were perceivable with the senses all at the same moment. The Holy Spirit descended on Christ like a dove. The Son, Christ, there, sitting in the water. The Father, audibly speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It'll happen again later in the Gospel of John. A thundering out of heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. His words are words of life. They are not just words of argumentation. There is no life outside of him. It says, do you say then of him, meaning himself, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, quote, you are blaspheming simply because I said I am the Son of God? He says, if you really want to challenge me on that, you're going to have to show that my words and works are unified against God. Watch. Because we know, by the way, that the one who does these works must be sent from God. That's why everyone was saying, well, maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's just one of the prophets. Yeah, but one of the prophets wouldn't claim to be God. And so they're trying to settle this thing out. We know he's just a man, and we know these works are exceptional, What do we do with all of that? And Jesus is throwing it in their face and going, good luck. If you're going to deny who I am and yet try to explain what I do, it's never going to work. And so he gives them a test. He says in verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. It's the simplest thing. If someone not sent from the father can do the works that I'm doing, opening the eyes of the blind, healing the paralytic, about to go to Bethany and raise someone from the dead, if those aren't the works of the Father, or if, uh, then don't believe me. That's perfectly fine. That would be legitimate. Your claim would then match your observation, which would then match your action. And what Jesus is pointing out is, your claims and your actions aren't matching up. Mine are. I claim to be God, I claim to be sent from the Father, and I'm doing the works of the Father. And he says, look, if all you can ever see are the works, then go ahead and measure them. And if they're not the works of the Father, this is why the Pharisees were, <clears throat> when he would cast out a demon, they would say, the only way that this happens is if he's the prince of the demons. It's like, really? That's the only way exorcism happens? I'm pretty sure God can do that. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them... Even though you don't believe me, my words, at least believe it works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Boy, that is no small statement. Imagine if he was just a prophet, just a human, trying to say this stuff. What, what prophet spoke like this? I and the Father are one. I am in the Father and he is in me. 
That, that level of intimacy, that level of relationship only exists on the deity level. Only if they are the same God. And it's why he's phrasing this this way again. Now, instead of stoning him, they're just like, fine, we'll have somebody else try you. We'll just arrest you then. Because one thing's for sure, we're not wrong in our unbelief. Because you aren't the person we expected. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Again, we were reminded by John, nothing that's about to happen in the Gospel of John, the last third of the entire uh, Gospel is all about the, um, the, the final week of Christ. It's actually almost half of it. None of these things happened before the purposes and the intention and the timing that God had. His hour, his day, all of these things. So Jesus went away from them across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing back at first. And so here John reminds us of John the Baptist uh, all the way back to chapter 1 in the book of John here. That's a lot of Johns. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign. He did no miracles, no works of the Father. He just spoke and gave word. But everything that John said about this man was true. And here's the result. Many believed in him there. John is giving two different ways to react to the witnesses about Christ. And only two. And he is showing that there with Christ is no halfway point. Either you believe him or you do not. Either the words of Christ are good enough or the works won't be. Now, remember, John is writing at a time where miracles are not happening much anymore in the history of the church. We live at a time where it's the same. All we have are the words. Do we have somebody in our experience here this morning that used to be dead and is now not dead because Christ rose them from the dead? Do we have any of them? Anyone? No. Paralytic? Is this experience normative for the modern church? Okay. Uh, a deathly fever, no medicine taken, healed instantaneously. I don't mean a gradual healing, a wonderful gift of God into the natural world. I mean instantaneously, recovered from paralysis. Death, blindness. Do we have any of these? Are we in a worse state? Or is John showing us if the words that you're reading, reader, aren't enough, the miracles wouldn't be either. We, and I've brought this up many times, we in the modern church, especially in the West, where we do not experience a crossover of the spiritual and the natural world with any regularity with regards to miracles, we imagine sometimes that if we were just there, and saw Jesus raise someone from the dead, I would never do what the people there did. And John is putting us face to face with the reality of the Pharisees said the same thing about their fathers in the persecution of the prophets. If we lived in their day, we never would have persecuted the prophets. And what does Jesus say? And yet you're going to kill his son. What did the apostles say? You who pride yourself on being different than your ancestors. 
You lie to yourself about who you are. You've killed the son of glory. The same goes to the reader. If your response to the words of Christ is not humility and faith, your response to his miracles would be the exact same. Unbelief every time. And people usually use this excuse. In fact, you'll see it all the time. If God is real, he needs to show himself to me. Really? Why? Are you the arbiter of truth? Are you the standard of proof? Is this where it goes? Did he not show himself to us in undeniable ways that were recorded in the center of hundreds of witnesses? If it was a legal trial, it would have been way past the burden of proof. And we look at that and we say, if only he would do some signs and wonders, if only he would do some miracles in our midst, then my faith would be bolstered. And John is saying, no, it wouldn't. Faith does not come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing the word of God. Faith that comes by seeing teaches you, if that's the only way it comes, pride. Every single time. For those of you who are in Sunday school this morning at 9 a.m., we were walking through the introduction to 1 Corinthians. He argues the exact same thing. When I came to you in Corinth, I did not come to you speaking plausible words of wisdom. Instead, I spoke like a fool, only of Christ and him crucified. Because that's where the solidity of the promises of God rests, not on us being convinced rightly, but on us hearing what God says. That is John interacting with us directly. He said he went away across Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to them. And look at this. John did no miracles, no signs, no wonders. He just spoke, and we listened to what he said, and what was their conclusion? Everything that John said about Jesus was true. And the result, without seeing any signs, any wonders, any miracles, was verse 42. Many believed in him there. The problem is not exposure or knowledge. The problem is an unbelieving heart. Unless we fall into the same category here, your faith would not be stronger if you saw 700 miracles. Your faith would not be stronger if you saw a miracle every single day. In fact, what Jesus expresses is all it would do is have you seek after signs and wonders which interrupts faith and instead confuses faith with sight. And it's why when people just keep on demanding signs and wonders, he stops doing them so that those who believe would be protected. I want to encourage us, as we live in a society very similar to the way that John writes to us, because he's writing to Greek Christians, and we live in a society that is defined a lot by Greek thought. Do not mistake being a witness with being filled with faith when it comes to signs and wonders. The word of God is sufficient for these things. And if the word of God will not bring faith to your heart, a thousand miracles wouldn't either. 
This is a gift from God, and we must hold to it the same level that Christ does here. It will not be broken and cannot be broken. But I do pray that it breaks our hearts and brings us into submission to him who lives forever because there's life in how many other names? No other name but Christ. Let's say thanks to him for that. Our Father, we're grateful for this text. We're thankful for the two sets of responses here shown to us. One that received the word of God and the works of God with derision. And another group that received the word given by God with acceptance. We pray that that be us in the latter category. For the first group, no matter how much they saw and no matter how much they heard, refused to believe in Christ and instead define themselves as his enemies. Find us, Father, in the second group, who upon hearing the testimony of the witnesses of John the Baptist over the words of Christ himself, even without the miracles, believed on him and were saved. We pray for that for all of us here. We pray that it drive us to your words and it drive us to our needs. May we glorify in Christ and him alone as we anticipate the world to come. We pray in his name. Amen.